Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank everyone in the audience for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in the U.S. It is um, <clears throat> interesting to me watching some of these broadband projects uh, unfold and people you know, are trying to focus on what is the holy grail of this whole exercise, which is really getting people onto the networks after they've been built. Um, that whole exercise of getting adoption, especially adoption in places where uh, traditionally they have been behind the curve on infrastructure, they've been behind the curve in general on getting technology, um, they may not be technology literate. All of these things present challenges and what we find is, you know, what the broadband project teams are doing are trying to figure out ways to overcome these challenges. I would contend that a strong, uh, very strong element that will determine your success in, uh, in, in generating broadband adoption is how well you do your research, you know, how well you do your homework. And it's not necessarily an easy task. Uh, it's not very exciting sometimes. But it is crucial to uh, the process, and I think that uh, what you find out in in how in doing your research is going to matter a lot to your success. Now, of course, the next big question is how do you do effective research, and that really is the focus of today's show. And I, I decided to bring um, some folks in from Missouri. Uh, I was there about a year or so ago, and and we talked a little bit about. Um, you know, their their broadband efforts there. But within uh, the various groups that are working on broadband in Missouri, there are folks doing a lot of research. And so today's guests are uh, Damon Porter, who is the managing director of the um, Mo Broadband Now uh, project in Missouri, and Anna Reed, who is a project director for um, uh, for the for the organization, so both of you, welcome to the show. Hello, we're glad to be with you, Craig, once again, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to share the message of broadband with your listeners and uh, and with your audience. So thank you. Thanks for having us today. Cool, glad to have you here for the first time, Anna. It'll be a fun time. Uh, so let's jump right in here. Um, research gathering of information. It seems to me, and I may be wrong, but it seems to me that that in uh, Missouri, in the organization, um, you guys have put a, a tremendous amount of effort into research. This, uh, this latest research report that caught my eye uh, was uh, one looking at non-adopters, but it was actually the third of uh, a series of, of significant research reports. Um, based on, you know, your conversation, especially you, Damon, I know you're at a lot of these functions in other states, you know, that relate to broadband and conferences and whatnot. Is Missouri doing a, a, a whole lot of research there, like maybe more than is the norm? Well, Craig, I, I think that each state is looking at the question of how to expand and enhance broadband in different uh, areas and in different ways. Certainly, I think the primary focus, not just for Missouri, but for all state uh, program offices that are focusing on broadband, is to collect data and to verify that data and information. And then once you have that information, 
try to figure out how you can use this kind of raw information as a tool to uh, really get the conversation going in different areas. And so uh, by no means Missouri is the only state or one of the few states that is doing research or writing reports because there's some other states that are doing some really excellent work and we, and we like to read their reports as well. But we certainly think that it's useful after you've collected a lot of information and data to make sense of it more than just a very abstract way of putting up numbers or publishing a map, but to really focus on a particular topic that is, is of um, great interest to people in, in terms of broadband access or adoption or affordability or speed or choice or sustainability. There's a whole lot of different questions around broadband that need need, a, need some discussion. Mm -hmm. Now, have you, in the beginning, or at least say a year, year and a half ago, did you establish like a laundry list of these are the things we want to find out and we want to find them out in this particular order? Because like I said, you know, this this uh, latest report, Understanding um, Internet Non-Adoption, uh, you started with a more, I think, general-themed report, uh, you know, as the first of this series. Um, what was what was the how did you guide or move this process forward? Well, I don't think we set out at the beginning with the notion that we'd have one report or three reports or ten reports. Um, this process has, has evolved, and I think this is the same thing that's happened in a lot of states. Three or four years ago, when Mo Broadband Now in 2009, when Mo Broadband Now got established, and <clears throat> probably the same could be said for other states. We had a certain idea of what we wanted to achieve then, and once you get engaged in this process, you start talking to people, you start realizing, um, hmm, there's certain certain questions that need to be answered. So we didn't come into the come into this thinking there were going to be a certain number of reports or a certain number of issues. Clearly, the uh, regional planning teams that we had, we had some regional planning technology teams. Um, and got a lot of feedback at the grassroots level as well. They had a lot of questions, and from that uh, process as well as uh, collecting this information, I think these reports just started to evolve. Certainly the first report that we did back in June of 2012 laid the foundation uh, and established kind of the base conversation of where we needed to go. And that report, which we um, called Dissecting Missouri's Digital Divide, focused on the rural-urban split. Uh, in Missouri, which clearly is, is a big issue, particularly if you're in an urban area or a high-density, highly dense, uh, populated area, the odds of you having good broadband service, good broadband speeds are, um, are, are kind of are not in question, but in the rural areas, that's, that's definitely a difficulty. In that report, we found that um, about 88% of those uh, in the rural areas had access, or excuse me, 88% of Missourians had access to internet service, but only 63% in the rural areas had broadband connection. And um, this compared with 82% um, of non-rural residents who had broadband. So there was definitely, definitely a digital divide between rural and urban splits. So that was kind of the first area we focused on. Mm-hmm. And then we went to the second report and said, gee, if people don't have access to broadband at home, uh, where are they getting connected? And so public libraries really became a very important focus. Uh, if you don't have broadband access at home, or even if you have broadband access at home, the, the primary area where people are getting broadband connection outside of the home is in public libraries. So we really want to, again, focus on that question. Uh, and then this last report on non-adoption, I think, is really the most interesting because 
you're talking about folks who have access to broadband. They could get broadband service right now if they wanted. But for a myriad of reasons have chosen not to do that, whether it be, be because of costs, whether it be because of uh, they don't think it's important to them, there's lack of interest. Um, this is the bigger question. Why aren't people taking taking the service if they have or, or accessing the service or adopting it? So we found <clears throat> in terms of non-adoption four key uh, areas. One is finance, cost. Second is availability. Third is the question of safety or privacy, and the fourth is technology know-how. So, mm-hmm. issues digital literacy—it's uh, not important to me. Why would I need to get connected? Those types of things. And I think those four main areas w- provide us with even a broader conversation of what are we going to do about it? How are we going to get people engaged? How are we going to get them online? How are we going to break down the barriers and obstacles that our report and the findings say are the obstacles that keep people from getting? Uh, Adopted to broadband. Mm-hmm. How long did it take to to do this last report? Well, you know, <clears throat> I think the the information we have, and it's really a question of assembling the information in a, in a in the way that we we want to kind of capture after we've captured data, assembling in a way we think is useful. But typically, these reports take a few months of drafting and editing and we we like to circulate them around to people who um who have kind of a a different perspective on on the issue to make sure that you know are we saying things in the right way is it clear and concise uh, is the information presented in a way that will appeal to academics as well as to lay people are we not getting too high above ourselves where it's not interesting and and certainly the more times you do this, the better you get. I think sometimes when I read our first report, uh, when I read it now, I say, boy, that's, there were some things that we, we, we missed or there were some mm-hmm. things that we could have explained in a different way. And certainly when we did the public library report, we um, got a lot of feedback and input from those people who are, we'll say, on the ground, so library <laughs> directors and library patrons and the people who have public libraries and and that sort of thing. So we circulated around to get a lot of feedback. So I'd say it takes a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Now, Anna, what's what's your role in in the big picture? I don't want to leave you out of the conversation. Um, I work on a range of things related to the project, largely with our regional planning commissions, and also um, on some of our mapping, data collection, reporting um, components as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. No. So, how have you found this, um, you know, this whole research process? Was it particularly challenging? Uh, were there things that made it, you know, easier to get from A to B and then on to C as you guys, you know, refined your research processes? Uh, I came on board after the data was collected, which uh, was great for me in terms of the research process. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, it's been really interesting to see um, how how we've looked at it and, and sort of how uh, some of those questions have been asked, I think, you know, as Damon was saying, from the regional planning process and some of the priorities that were identified, the priority sectors, that really has helped us identify uh, some of the key areas to look at and focus on. And I think to go back to the, the library report for a minute, that one was interesting because we were able to take both that quantitative component from the survey data and look at, you know, libraries as a 
key access point for Missourians. 37% uh, of all Missourians, I think over 50% of Missourians who don't have the internet at home accessing uh, accessing the internet at a public library, but also to look at a qualitative component and to speak with uh, librarians from around the state who are seeing their libraries use regularly the public computing facilities, um, you know, busy at all times with people using them for homework, for uh, job finding support using the training programs that are offered. Um, so to really see not just the data, but how that works in action. So combining that qualitative and quantitative component in that report, um, I think was a very useful component of that research as well. Mm -hmm. And our listeners, if, if some of you were here yesterday, and I see that Chuck is here with us today, he's one of my uh, more frequent uh, guests in the audience, um, we talked about libraries in, in some detail, actually, and libraries as a pivot point because, number one, every community has libraries. Um, libraries are a place where particular, you know, people particularly who do not have access uh, to the Internet go. But in, in, in many respects, <clears throat> the, the library represents sort of the centralized knowledge gathering place. You know, if you want to learn something, figure out how to do something, you go to the library, and the library's use of the internet just is an, is an extension of that role. Um, did you find? Well, I guess it's sort of asking an obvious question, but you know, are libraries a logical place to go to gather, you know, really useful information about uh, adoption or non-adoption, as the case may be? Either one of you can answer this one. Um, well, libraries, you know, in many communities really are a critical access point themselves because they are one of the few places that people are able to access um, the Internet for, for free. You know, you're able to go and you're able to, to if you have a library card, um, set up an account. Often there is a time limit for using it, though uh, several of the libraries we talked to, if you were using it for job finding or for schoolwork, would, would waive the time limit, um, though a number specified that they didn't believe in tracking activities or making use determinations as part mm -hmm. of their mission. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, um, you know, in that sense, they're a place to, to find information about access, but they also themselves are, are just a really critical access point um, in many communities for people who otherwise aren't able to necessarily get online. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, We'll come back maybe to a little bit more about the findings of um, this re most recent report and some of your other findings in, in research. Um, I do want to come back to to process. So uh, libraries are a good place for gathering information clearly because they are a hub of um, you know traffic and and people using um, the, the the network or the internet. How else do you have you found effective at gathering reliable data on, on particularly on adoption issues? So most of the data that we've used in the reports was collected through a statewide survey that mm -hmm. was sent out um, in May of 2011. Uh, it was sent out to households. It was a paper mail survey. Um, and that was the primary way that most of the data has been gathered. We've also collected uh, sector data, which some of which is reported uh, in, in the report, so less so. I know it's definitely mentioned in the library report and to some extent in the digital inclusion report. 
working with our regional planning commissions through the planning process, and that's also been a great way to gather data because they uh, have great stakeholder engagement at the regional level and work, you know, very well with the communities uh, that they, the communities um, in their regions and and other stakeholders in their regions, and. Um, some data, and this is available on our website, there's a summary um, up on the website, um, was also collected at the state fair last year um, about use and speed and price. And so that was another great place where people, you know, were coming in from all over the state, um, stopping by just to hand out a short survey and get some information, um, obviously less scientific than the survey that was sent out as a mail survey to households around the state, but it was a another quick check mm -hmm. and uh, actually produced some similar, similar mm -hmm. information. I think you find, Craig, <clears throat> in this process of broadband, it's um, you have to use all different types of resources at your disposal to collect information. You have to recognize that some of it is going to be collected in a very scientific, methodical way, and a lot of times it's going to be almost the word of mouth because when you're talking about broadband, Oftentimes, the people who are the most vocal or who have the best suggestions or who can provide the most input are the people who don't have broadband, and so uh, you can't just reach them through an online survey or you can't reach them through email. You really have to get grassroots, and so uh, it's a question of who's participating, who's showing up at your local meetings, or who's attending different types of events. We've done things, for example, with future farmers at their fair, at state fairs, as Anna had mentioned, and other places. So um, the, the, it really helps provide a, a good flavor, I think, for what's going on. So you have a basis of some scientific or statistical information, but you can color the picture a little bit with, with a lot of vignettes and anecdotes and qualitative um, information that you get just from the feedback of people you meet on the street. Mm-hmm. And and how do you balance um, quantitative with qualitative? Because I know that some research folks are all about the the quantitative, and you know people who are I think policymakers to a large extent. You know they want to know numbers, 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 numbers. But in the overall scheme of things, for making you know more more broadband now more effective as an organization, how do you balance the quantitative with the qualitative? Well, I think you always have to start with the numbers. I mean, clearly, you have to have some facts that can be proven or disproven uh, and that you can back up. There's no question about that. But, you know, oftentimes uh, the quantitative data is only a, it's only a snapshot in time like anything else. It, it gives you a picture of what is going on at the time the survey instrument was was in the field. And also, you can only ask but so many questions, you know, unless you're going to give someone a 400-page survey to fill out and they've, got all the time, <laughs> and they've got all the time in the world to answer every single question and, you know, if, if no, go to question 299. You can only ask so many questions on a survey because it's cost and on our end to, to print them and to mail them and that sort of thing and time of, of getting the information back as well as the time and resource of the person taking it. So. You know, clearly we want the numbers to be the basis, but as I said, you really need to color it in a little bit. And sometimes uh, one piece of statistical information will tell you uh, something, but it won't tell you if everything. So, for example, when we did our survey that Anna alluded to back in 2011, we asked people what did they use the uh, Internet for within the last seven days of taking the survey. And I think something like 65 to 70% of the respondents said that they had 
use the Internet for health and medical uh, purposes. Well, that is a statistical data, and that's a number, but it doesn't really tell you the background story. So are they using the Internet because they have aches and pains and they want to go online to kind of self-diagnose what their aches and pains are, or are they using the Internet because they are using telemedicine, or are they using it because they are uh, viewing a radiological image that they had from a test that they had done or getting a prescription refilled. So you have the data, but then you need to color it in with some quantitative thing, and that only comes through kind of interactive um, engagement with people. And then on the qualitative side, we asked all the regional planning commissions to help us collect information about um, what was happening in their regions, how broadband was being used, and on the telemedicine piece that Damon just spoke about, one of the regions had someone who lived uh, quite far away from a hospital who'd had a severe heart attack several years earlier send a story about um, how he was using monitoring devices and able to communicate with a university hospital that was an hour and a half away from where he lived and send the data he needed to his cardiologist so that he could visit less frequently. And so you get those um, qualitative pieces that you can then match with the data to say, you know, this percentage of people report using telemedicine, and then here's here's what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the, the, like, the data gathering manpower, person power, um, you know, I, I did a I did a project as part of a needs assessment uh, for one community where we went to the uh, one of the colleges, one of the California colleges, uh, their um, oh, a group that, that focused on a lot of economic development issues, and they recruited and put a team of folks on the telephone. And for a month, they basically called uh, businesses in the community and, and went through the survey that way. So that's you know one element of data gathering. One of my uh, guests, uh, folks from Champaign-Urbana, uh, several weeks ago, you know, they put feet in the street, got a lot of volunteers and gave them clipboards and sent them out going door to door. Uh, in Missouri, you guys have approached the broadband um, deployment uh, issue by creating regional uh, groups, regions with, you know, dividing the state up into regions, and then each region has people responsible for various tasks associated with, you know, the deployment process, gathering information and all of that. Um, have, have you used the other two methods, you know, phones and, uh, you know, feet in the street? Uh, and did having the regional uh, the regional breakdown or, or composition of how, you know, you, you divide up the state, has that been particularly helpful compared to the other types of uh, research data gathering? Um, so Missouri has 19 regional planning commission areas uh, that work on a number of issues, and we engaged with uh, all 19 regions for the the planning and then also to support a number of the data collection uh, efforts. And and that really has been very helpful. They they have provided and been able to provide a lot of support, as I mentioned earlier. You know, they know the stakeholders in their regions very well um, in terms of engaging people from specific sectors on sector surveys, which were used for the uh, putting together the plans and the planning effort, uh, that that really was very useful. Uh, we have not done any phone surveying. That hasn't been a part of, of 
what we've done in terms of data collection, and then I guess in terms of the feet on the ground uh, that you mentioned, I think that the state fair kind of surveying, and as Damon mentioned, going out to FFA meetings and things like that can kind of be considered to fall in that category. You know, we haven't really done a lot of door-to-door um, -door kind of knocking on people's doors or things like that. Um, I know in some of some of the regions, um, kind of after our direct involvement wound down, there were some projects that kind of started to go that direction, and, and mm -hmm. um, you know, we are we're definitely happy to see that kind of level of engagement and uh, continued investment in in broadband and enthusiasm uh, for that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, as you said, there are advantages to each kind um, of data collection. Uh, we find that the the paper surveys uh, supported by some of the the visits to other places, state fairs, and then engagement with the regions works works very well for the the type of data we're trying to collect. Mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned one at one point here about um, events, like there was a farmers' event of one sort or the other. Uh, did you tap a number of of special events or, or you know already structured events uh, to help with the data gathering process? Uh, no, not not necessarily. I think this is something we certainly want to look into for 2013 this year. Mm -hmm. um, our regional technology planning teams will be getting up and running again. Um, they have all written uh, strategic plans that contain short and long-term goals in there, and now we're really in the implementation piece of it. And one of the uh, elements of those strategic plans is the question of adoption, uh, as well as their each of the teams will be coming up with some uh, goals, uh, whether it may be on healthcare or agriculture or uh, further deployment of broadband for business and economic development. You name it. So I think there's going to be some more of that grassroots out, outreach at the regional level that we're going to incorporate into that. And we certainly hope that after doing this process for the last 18 to 24 months, that we have the level of momentum with those teams, um, that they're going to be able to reach out to more of their peer groups, colleagues, stakeholders, neighbors, friends, churchgoers, and that sort of thing, and getting them engaged. Mm -hmm. So um, th I think this is a good thing for maybe us to pilot maybe in one or two regions kind of the door-to-door, -door, the clipboard-style kind of grassroots engagement to see what type of um, level of participation we can get. Mm -hmm. So let's let's talk, um, you know, findings. Non-adopters, actually the way you phrased the title for the report, uh, I thought it was rather interesting because actually this is what caught my attention. I'm, I, I think that if I see, you know, things related to, you know, building adoption, and I see that sort of in that phrase in that way so often I kind of ignored it. But you guys use the title um uh understanding internet non adoption. Um is that because you're basically saying that there is a pro uh, active decision that I'm not going to be involved with broadband and that's really what you're studying. It's like those people who are sort of actively not wanting to be part of broadband as opposed to people who want to be there but can't get on to broadband? I don't know that it's necessarily an active decision that people don't want to be a part of it. I think what uh, there are a number of factors that affect whether or not people do end up adopting broadband. You know, there are the four that uh, 
Damon mentioned earlier, the finance related, the availability related, the technology know-how related and the safety and privacy concerns. Mm -hmm. And then um, related to that, there are a number of other factors that we found are, you know, correlated to uh, broadband non-adoption, including um, household income, whether or not there are children in the household, um, and so forth. Um, and all of these can impact whether or not, uh, you know, a household does have, have broadband. And so uh, these are all, you know, I think factors that as we're looking at, at how to increase adoption in the state are things we, we do need to be aware of and consider. Mm -hmm. I think the title suggests that, and the reason why we say understanding is because you have to really meet people where they are, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so rather than coming up with some other type of title that says, oh, well, um, we know there are people who are never going to take broadband, and so what's the point? Uh, which I think is, is some people have taken that view. Well, there's only there's going to be a certain segment of the population that's never going to adopt broadband, so why focus on that segment of the population? Let's focus on those who are, are adopters and enhancing and, and making their experience much more robust and much more enjoyable. And so I think the title for us is, is a question of let's meet people where they are. We understand there are people who are, <clears throat> for one reason or another, not adopting broadband, and you can't have a two-tiered um, uh, state, you can't have a two-tiered nation that's going to be globally competitive if a certain segment refused to, to get online. We know that increasingly more and more applications, more and more uh, facets of our life, and more and more time in our waking hours are going to be committed to being online and to being technologically uh, savvy. And so let's understand what's keeping people from getting connected, and let's then have the conversation about how do we how do we move them in? Is it a push? Is it a pull? Is it carrot? Is it stick? Is it incentive? Um, and so I think that's I think that's the right approach to this. Mm-hmm. Were there any surprises that uh, you know as far as findings? I think one thing that was a little surprising is that households with children apparently put more value on broadband access even when they don't currently have it in the home. Uh-huh. And I thought that was just kind of an interesting um interesting finding overall. Okay. Um what what have been your expectation that that you know it would be pretty much across the board or that people with kids wouldn't that didn't have internet wouldn't care or, or what? Or was I don't know that I necessarily thought about that that ca category um, specifically in terms of if you, I think I kind of thought, you know, general, in terms of broadband non-adopters in general, value across different, the value placed on broadband across different categories would probably be pretty similar. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you broke it out based on, um, non-adopters by income group or non-adopters um, by households with children or things like that, I, I guess I, I probably would have thought that the value placed on broadband across different non-adopter groups would have been, mm -hmm. been pretty Did, similar. So I, I, think Craig, I, I think, Craig, again, I think, that's, um, I think that's an area of some hope, really, mm -hmm. that, again, um, there are folks who are saying, listen, I'm not on the Internet. I'm not connected to the World Wide Web. It's not important for me and my generation, so to speak, but that that these folks still recognize that this this is the future, 
and um, that is really important for the success of their children. I think I think it says something about the expectations that parents have for their children and recognizing that if their children are going to be successful with their generation and future generations, it's going to require them to have the technological savvy, the, the knowledge, the know-how, the digital literacy. But I think there's also some hope there for the parent. So even the parent who's a non-adopter, uh, that may lend itself again to this question of fear, of intimidation, of, you know, I really want to know more about the Internet, but I'm afraid to ask for the help. And mm-hmm. so I think that I think again this is an opportunity when you get this kind of data to say let's ensure that it, in our education system that we make technology that we make digital inclusion that we make uh education online and a priority for for kids. But uh let's also figure out some ways that maybe we can break down that intimidation factor so we can bring the parent along with the child. Mm-hmm. So I, I so again I think that that piece of information is is really telling about what we can do and what is is possible. And I think it also gives us another question to ask when you see something like that with a particular group, because then it says, you know, what is the major reason these mm-hmm. households are adopting? You know, is is the major reason in households? And I think we actually do answer this in the report, but um, with households without children, is it availability? Is it cost? And if those are the two main issues, you know, those those are things that might be able to be addressed. And, you know, you do see programs around the country that do offer, granted, lower speed, but also lower cost broadband to households that have, have children in them often mm-hmm. or to households that, that have qualifying incomes. And so, um, you know, it, it's an interesting finding, and it, it, as Damon says, it's hopeful, but it also can, can pose more questions. Mm-hmm. Now, did you... Or do you find that uh, small businesses fit into this category of non-adopters? Well, I think our, our reports focus uh, are really focused on the residential side. That's where our data that mm-hmm. we've used primarily was collected. For businesses, um, and this is just kind of, I think, anecdotal. It's not really in our reports necessarily, mm-hmm. but... Uh, I think businesses definitely recognize uh, they have a, a different level of um, need for broadband. So I think fewer and fewer businesses now are, would, would say we can survive, we can thrive without being connected. I mean, if, if anything, most businesses are looking not for one provider but multiple providers uh, for the issue of redundancy. They know that if their if their internet uh, connection goes down and they only have one provider and they don't have a, a redundant source or a backup source, they have to shut down business for the day, they've got to send people home, they can't fulfill process orders, they can't continue the production. So I think the climate in the business community, even in rural communities, is such that um, you would have a very low non-adoption rate among businesses if they have access, if the accessibility is there. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned earlier those sector surveys that uh, were done as part of the regional planning process. There was a business sector survey, and businesses generally did uh, note that they thought that broadband access was important. Um, and we are, are you know, aware, as Damon said, of that uh, general sense of importance mm-hmm. uh, to businesses. Obviously, there's a there's a cost component there as well with both availability and cost with the business needs. 
Mm-hmm. What about home-based businesses? Um, were you able to parse out those folks from the rest of uh, you know the residential folks that you were uh, surveying to see if there was a you know if someone had a you know little boutique or they sold arts and crafts or whatever that that had a had a um, influence on their decision to be an adopter or not. You know, we did ask a question about whether or not people operate or support a home-based business. Um, we found that 17%, 15% of people in Missouri overall, 17% in rural Missouri, and 13% in non-rural Missouri were supporting home-based businesses. Um, we have not looked at that impact on adoption overall. So that is an interesting question for you to pose to us. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, did you look at or also parse out how many folks work from home? Not necessarily have a business, but actually, you know, telecommute. Twenty five percent, twenty four percent in rural Missouri, and twenty six percent in non rural Missouri. And again, anecdotally, something we've heard is that people in rural Missouri have a, a slightly harder time telecommuting due to the often slower connection speeds, which uh, sometimes yeah. don't support VPN or other remote mm-hmm. connections. It's it's interesting on the project that I'm working on in in Iowa. There is a, well, it's not it wasn't the full total survey, but it was a um, uh, you know people were voluntarily completing surveys on on the web, which by default leaves out people who don't have internet connections. But that's another story. We were just trying to get a snapshot of the situation, and we found that um, you know other people who have connections, thirty five percent of them uh, telecommuted. And this was a big this was a big deal for them, and um, which to me I thought was pretty high. Now you guys have twenty five percent. Maybe it is that telecommunicate telecommuting has become more prevalent than we think because you know until these last you know this last year or two, you know it hasn't seemed to me that there's a lot of people doing you know this thing called telecommuting. Uh, what's what's your take on on the whole telecommuting uh, practice, at least in your last couple of years of doing surveys and whatnot? It's something you know that is specifically mentioned in the the national broadband plan, which provides some data on how many uh, more people, specifically, I think retirees, disabled, and and um, you know. Uh, women who currently stay at home would be interested in entering the workforce in some capacity if they could work from home. Um, and then additionally, you know, the benefits for businesses. Um, so I think, you know, the National Broadband Plan does call out the positive economic benefits of, of telecommuting. Um, I think it is something that employers are starting to see the benefits of. Um, I know the previous place I worked was very big on telecommuting. Um, I don't know if Damon has anything to add on telecommuting specifically, mm-hmm. but I think it is is from both my work experience and from what I've been reading, something that is is growing. I think another thing that we've heard, particularly from economic development councils and um, cities and municipalities that have an economic development uh, component, you know, the old days of attracting businesses was to provide incentives for brick and mortar. You know, we'll build this plant, we'll build this building, we'll build this uh, industrial center, and let's then try to attract a business to come. 
And I think a lot of economic development councils and commissions and planning structures now are saying, you know what, our best resource in town are the people who live here. And they live in our communities because they want a certain way of life, and, and again, from a rural perspective or even kind of an exurb or suburban area, they want a certain way of, of, of life. And uh, the best thing we can do is get our talent base strong and get the Internet connections high. And so now let's try to recruit businesses to do business with us, not necessarily moving their physical plan or their headquarters, but this kind of telecommuting and this um, sharing of work through the Internet. So I think that, that, that level of telecommuting or online kind of working is going to increase um, because it makes sense for both on both ends. The business gets the talent and the workforce that they want. The the local communities have high unemployment. They, they're putting people back to work who are spending money in their local areas. Um, and uh, it's all because of broadband that this is possible. Mm-hmm. And that would make sense because uh, really it is about the, you know, about the uh, speed of the connection, you know, as you're dealing with more um, complex applications and VPN networks and all the rest of it. So I think that would be the case. And I would assume that uh, in the more rural or, you know, traditionally suburban areas, uh, telecommuting would be almost, uh, you know, some significant points ahead of, say, the urban areas just because of the, of the travel distance otherwise. You know, once you get that broadband connection in place, then you're thinking, well, you know, I can cut off that whole, you know, hour, two hour, whatever the, whatever the commute happens to be. Yeah, I don't know what the breakdown is between urban and rural, but, uh, I mean, even in urban communities, again, companies are realizing, you know, the cost for Class 1A office space uh, it gets sometimes to be very cost prohibitive, and you know why are we spending so much money on lease and rent for for kind of shiny glass office buildings when the folks who are in that building are doing so much of their work online anyway? And and yes, we need uh, space for conferencing and for in-person meetings and for collaborative work, but not all the time. And so again, even in urban areas, you're finding companies kind of scaling down the amount of actual physical space they need and having people working from home. So, yes, I think the, the commuting and the transportation piece is a big issue, and certainly with gas here in Missouri at $3.50 a gallon, uh, it, it's getting much harder to, to drive into town to work when you're 30, 40, 50 minutes to an hour uh, from work. And so uh, this is a new economy, and it's, it's a new way of doing business. It's a new way of looking at productivity. It's a new way of allocating resources. It's a new way of figuring out how we can get the best and the brightest and, and the, the, the best talent in our workforce, getting people employed, but also using the technology that's going to be here for a long, long time. You know, when you think about, again, attracting <clears throat> a business and you put incentives to build that brick and mortar, a lot of times that brick and mortar building is a um, specific purpose or a specific use building. And when that business comes and they get in a sweetheart deal from another community to move somewhere else or the business folds or what have you, now you have a building that uh, can't serve no other purpose. But if you spend that investment uh, putting the fiber in the ground, getting the connections and the speeds up, you have something that's going to be permanent and long-lasting for a much longer time. So it's a better return on your investment in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the questions that came up in the chat room that um, I, I may get a little afield of the of the survey report, but it basically is, you know, do you have situations where 
if the solution that you're providing, you know, bringing in broadband, if that doesn't produce taxes based on real estate, in other words, you know, one of the reasons why cities, you know, try to get businesses to move in is because they collect taxes on their presence. But if you create a situation in which people, you know, companies don't have to buy as much real estate or people can start businesses and, you know, say they're working as a virtual team, never have to rent office space, does that create a negative tax impact, number one, or does, or conversely, because it's, say, bringing in broadband does not necessarily have a direct, uh, produce a direct increase on you know, property being used and property taxes collected, will there maybe be less incentive by some of the powers that be within a community to push broadband? Well, we're, we're certainly not economists, so I don't want to make any pronouncements on on how uh, one part of the co economy is affected versus another in terms of broadband usage. But, uh, I mean, I think, again, in terms of kind of revenue generation, there's going to be different kinds of mixes in, in as we go forward just in the fact that online business commerce, online uh, usage is going to go up. And, I mean, certainly this is a policy question that is arising in Missouri and other places. And The online sales tax yeah, but, I mean, I think there was, a, there was a question of online sales. So. Um, because, you know, a lot of times now if there's not a brick-and-mortar building in the state, the sales tax is not collected, um, whereas if, if there is a business presence in the state, it is. And so that's a question that I think a lot of states, not just Missouri, are currently working uh, on how to address, if they are going to address it, uh, mm -hmm. in relation to that, what happens when businesses aren't physically present in the state. Um, and then just in addition to that, the, that, this isn't so much on taxes specifically, but the economic benefits, these are kind of broad, but um, the FCC has some numbers up on their website, uh, and they project the annual economic benefits in rural areas from new broadband deployment to be $700 million. I think that was over a five-year period. Um, and the benefit-to-cost ratio for consumers to be uh, three to one. So, you know, generally, broadly viewed, all the economic projections on broadband deployment are very positive. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 all part of a shifting mix. I mean, it it does have an impact. Things do change because you're not necessarily bringing in businesses per se of the traditional type, you know, the brick and mortar all the time. But it sounds like, you know, states have now the challenge of needing to adapt to that issue, um, you know, as as these changes come about. It's not a bad thing. I would imagine. Uh, just it, it will, you know, if you if you are not prepared, I can see where people could get caught flat-footed. But uh, you know, yeah. work around that. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think it's I think it's it's an evolving mix. But I think the the bigger kind of question and answer to it is, uh, you know, if you have a community that is um, dwindling in population or dwindling in terms of the number of businesses in that community, the number one question for that community is how do we put people back to work? And and uh, certainly, uh, people who are working and, and are contributing to the workforce, they are going to be spending a lot more uh, in terms of commerce, not just in terms of you know, payroll tax and income tax, but sales tax, and they're going to be spending more money in, in those local communities. So, uh, you know, clearly, when more people are at work, 
the better the community is. And certainly we know that broadband plays a role in that. And mm-hmm. com- communities that uh, you know have good broadband speeds are more likely to attract and retain businesses. And so you know there will still be businesses who who will want to move to communities and have that brick and mortar presence. And I think that will only be amplified when that community is thriving and has a very strong kind of tax base and a very strong workforce. So I don't want to suggest that, you know, every business is going to go online. There's never any need to for new construction or new housing or that sort of thing. I don't want any of my construction folks to, to feel like they're not going to be, have any jobs or projects because certainly that will be the case. Right. But uh, I think I think one helps the other and and one one plays off the other. So good Internet infrastructure will lead to more jobs, which will lead to more kind of infrastructure as a whole. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think sometimes I think communities are looking at if we have to make that investment from an incentive standpoint, it might be better for the long term if we invested in the in in the broadband network. I think that was probably more my point. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing to note on, you know, the brick and mortar jobs or, or other kinds of jobs, an increasing number of those companies are just taking applications online, um, I think. You know, that gets cited a lot. Uh, and so having that broadband infrastructure there is important, not just for those those companies, but for the job seekers as well. Mm-hmm. So let me ask this question, kind of floating back to the, you know, sort of the demographics and adoption. Um, is there any noticeable difference in adoption, uh, difference between uh, men and women or boys and girls? Because, you know, one of the criticisms leveraged at the technology industry in a general sense is, um, you know, there is this assumption that women don't, you know, play games, electronic games. They don't use technology, yada, yada, yada. Um, In the demographics that you're looking at or the demographic information that you're looking at, is there any noticeable difference between male and female in adoption issues? You know, we did the survey by head of household, so we did not specifically break it down by gender. Um, Mm -hmm. There is some information, I think, that PewClex that does look at some of that. Uh, One thing I know off the top of my head is that there is a difference between uh, youth and and adults uh, that they track. And within that, there is a little bit of difference. So it's only, uh, I think, just one, but it may be a couple percentage points between boys and girls within the youth breakdown. Mhm. Interesting. Um, so now another uh, question. And one of my theories, if you will, about uh, adoption is that you can get a bunch of people on or not, and then hope that people will discover applications that keep them on or expand their use or what have you. But a lot of the, you know, a lot of what I see as far as people's efforts at uh, generating adoption is kind of the mass, you know, let's get everybody get on board, get on board, get on board, you know, because getting on board is the value. Um, I have contended that broadband project teams should look at certain types of companies, certain industries, for example, convince the local um, medical facility to create certain content on, you know, preventative health care to draw people on that way. And maybe the local bank or credit union uh, develops content on, uh, you know, good money management. And a gaming company, you know, might come in with content on, you know, why online gaming is the next best thing in the world and and facilitating, you know, uh, online competition and so forth. 
So in essence, it's going out and finding an application to then draw people online versus doing a drive to just get people online with kind of a broad sense of being online is good for you. Um, is there merit in one of those versus the other, or is there a rational way to combine the two of those approaches? What, what do each of you think on that? You know, that's an interesting kind of way of looking at how to get people to become adopters of broadband. I think I would take the the attitude and the approach of there's so much content, there's so much information, there are so many different applications and uses for the Internet that far be it from us that we should try to direct anyone who's a non-adopter in a certain type of uh, area because I think the, the the fun of it, so to speak, and the learning curve of it uh, is the exploration. And so... Um, you know, I think for us, it's it's once people get online and they start kind of exploring for themselves, they're going to, I think, quickly come to the determination that this is something that they can't live without, and more importantly, it's something that they want to really make a part of their daily habit routine and, and, and incorporate in every facet of their life. So I don't know if necessarily coming up with certain types of applications specific to certain areas or certain types of subject matter although I think that certainly will get some people involved, I think we should probably take a much more general approach to it, which is saying, you know, let the non-adopter do the exploration and the investigation for themselves. Mm-hmm. Anna, what are your thoughts? Um, you know, I think that there, there is probably merit in both approaches. I think that, you know, the broad-based approach may very well get a lot of people online, but I think for some people the internet just can seem very overwhelming and uh, having more information on a specific use uh, could really help them connect and get online. And I, you know, kind of think about, you know, I use the the web very differently than my parents do and they use it very differently than my grandparents do and my grandparents use it for the few very specific things they use it for and I think are probably much more online than many people in their their mid to late 80s. Um, but you know, having very specific information about how to do the specific things that they want to do is is what they're looking for when they're online, and they're not just exploring um, how to use different applications. Whereas I'm very comfortable doing that. You know, I'll read about a new app like um, this Google Field Trip one, which is a pretty cool thing, you know, it just pops up when you're near something that's like a historical marker or a site, um, and it's supposed to be like the new way that you'll interact with technology in the future. Um, I guess it's still in this beta phase, but, you know, I'll read about it, I'll just download it, I'll try it out, I'll see if I like it. Um, and so I think both ways will appeal to people in different generations who are different comfort levels. Um, so I guess those would be my thoughts on it. Mm -hmm. uh, do you find or have you found that all of the excitement coming out of Kansas City because of the Google project, has that had any, I don't know, noticeable impact on uh, adoption or interest to adopt? That is a question we don't really have an answer for. I mean, certainly there's a lot of ex uh, excitement, enthusiasm about the Google Fiber project specifically, as well as a lot of the other broadband providers who are now providing um, ultra-fast 
speeds uh, service to their uh, customers and in that area. But uh, we don't really have any specific information in terms of whether or not just the announcement and the the kind of upcoming deployment of the Google Fiber project itself is is gotten more non adopters. I think that's something that's going to be a wait and see. Mm, okay, yeah, that would make sense. And, and and I think and I think it's not just Google Fiber. I mean, I think a lot of the broadband providers are really stepping up to the plate by recognizing that for a certain for a certain group of people, non adoption is based on cost and it's based on on equipment. And so, you know, Google Fiber is doing a wonderful thing saying, listen, we're going to connect your home, and for the, for the first seven years, you can get, uh, I think it's five meg down, one meg up for no cost. I mean, mm-hmm. I there's, some upfront, there's some upfront cost in terms of the, 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 the construction to the home, which if you spread it over seven years is, is very, 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 very nominal. Uh, but I think that's one way we're going to see some non-adoption, and I think others have done the same thing, Comcast, Time Warner, CenturyLink all have these very low cost entry level um, uh, price points that also include some hardware. So I think they're all doing the right thing, moving in the right direction. The question really remains: you know, are people aware of these low cost entry points? Number one, do they care? Do they find this important? Do they find it, you know, helpful? And, you know, how aggressive are these broadband providers in terms of their marketing and their outreach? So I think it's a wait and see. Mm-hmm. Coolness. We've got about two minutes, so I'm going to put both of you on the spot and ask you each for one, you know, one tip, one piece of advice to give folks on how to do effective research on broadband adoption. Uh, so one minute each, starting with Anna. We'll start with you. Um, I think it's to look not just at the data you've collected, but to, you know, ask the data, this is not making a ton of sense so far, what it's telling you. You know, don't just go with your preconceived notions of what you were looking for, the hypothesis you had when you started collecting the data, but to really take a good look at um, the information that that is there and, and what is in the information you've collected. Mm-hmm. I, I think the other part is to recognize that there's still one out of three people who have access to broadband at the at the moment who choose not to take the service. Uh, that is still an alarming a number of folks that we need to strive every day to figure out ways to get them to become adopters of broadband. And, and clearly from this conversation we've had today that there are a lot of different approaches and a lot of different steps we can take. So we need to continue discussion and collectively work to make the numbers uh, change into a more realistic um uh, out, outlook of, of people who are actually online. Mm-hmm. Coolness. Well, I think that's uh, going to about do it here for us. I'm going to add the uh, link to the study, Understanding Internet Non-Adoption, to the descriptor, uh, description page for this uh, broadcast so that anyone who wants to check out the report can. Uh, thank you, Anna, and thank you, Damon, for being with us today and giving us all this great insight to that that topic called research. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Come see us in Missouri this summer. I have to. I'll be in Kansas. I'll be in Kansas City. I think I might be able to cross the street and make it over to Missouri. <laughs> well, we'd love to see you. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you again. Have a great day, and you know, much continued success with your broadband uh, initiatives. Uh, do well. Do well. That's really that's really what it's all about. 
And uh, okay. to our listening audience, thank you uh, for being in, uh, checking out another episode of the show. Next week, we are going to look at multi-dwelling units, how to incorporate those in strategy. Uh, have a great day, folks, and we'll talk again soon.